You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Jim, who is a managing partner at Riverside Acceleration Capital. He has been investing in enterprise software companies since 2006, both as an individual and as an institutional investor. He is passionate about software and entrepreneurship and strives every day to be helpful as an investor and partner for growth. On today's show, we talk about why should companies think of raising debt when taking outside capital versus equity? What, what should one know about private equity? Where is the private equity world moving towards in the next five years? What type of operation partners can a PE group bring to one of their investments and much more? Now remember, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capitals, and more. Now with that, let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jim, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, we've just recently met, but it's so fascinating what you're doing that, well, our audience really needs to know especially here in Silicon Valley. I mean, the topics that we're going to cover today is information that, well, should come up more and more in conversation. But, you know, I think I gave a little bit, enough hints to our audience to really captivate them. But before going into those golden nuggets, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and kind of the history of Riverside Acceleration Capital? Thank you. Yes, would would love to. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Riverside Acceleration Capital, RAC, we just call, call it RAC. It was really the culmination for me of a whole lot of observations, just a whole lot of time that I've spent investing in private software companies. This is what I love doing. I, I made my first in software investment actually in 2006. And SaaS was still pretty new at that point, really. And it's just, I mean, it's been an awesome place to, to make a career. And so we had the chance back in 2016, actually, to get Rat going. And it was really founded on two core beliefs. One is really an observation that the software companies that have been most successful in my experience have been the ones that have managed to be really smart about when they raise capital, how much capital they raise, and and what kind of capital they're raising. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it makes a huge difference. And, And the flip side of it is that the companies that get it wrong, like you can really screw up a company. And the second really founding belief is that I want management teams, founders to really expect a lot from their capital partners, meaning that if someone's going to make an investment in your company, they need to have real systematic operating resources that they can bring to you. It can't just be about who's the partner that's going to be on my board. That's important. But a, a firm needs to have real operating heft as well. You really need both parts of that equation. So with Rack, what we did is we kind of took a clean sheet of paper and said, if we were going to start a firm from scratch, what would that look like? Uh, and th- that's how we were born. So two things to know about Rack. One is that we can invest either debt or equity. We work with a company. When we meet them, we tailor it to what makes the most sense for them at a particular time. And then the second is that we live inside of a global private equity firm called Riverside. And Riverside's been around for... 35 years, got offices all over the world. And that's where we get our 
our operating capabilities. You can imagine that being a part of this big firm, companies that we invest in have access to just a whole range of resources. Um, so that's really what it was. It really kind of grew out of those two core beliefs. Now, Jim, you mentioned two things there that really caught my attention. The first one was timing your funding uh, on the equity rounds. I mean, I'd really want to dive deeper into that. Also, you talked about you know, why should companies think of raising debt? Now here in Silicon Valley, debt, I'm not sure if people even have ever heard of that word. So I'm really curious if we could dive into, you know, and get some industry expertise on one, timing around fundraising rounds, and then two, you know, raising debt and not just equity or maybe debt and equity or, or the combination or a lot there to unravel, but wherever you want to take it. Well, the first thing I want people to to question is the whole idea that the, like you're right there is this bias that the only way to grow and scale a software company is with a an ever increasing series of equity rounds like sometimes equity is is great and exactly what you want to do but sometimes it's better to look at alternatives or it's better even to wait and maybe I'll just take a minute on this so the way that we think about it is we think of software companies as kind of being on a little journey. It's like a it's like a journey that kind of repeats itself as they grow. And it's 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 four basic stages. The the first stage is where you're trying to identify what your pain is that you're solving. So really, you know, like people call it product market fit. That's stage one. Stage two is then you're you're systematizing that and you're making that something that's repeatable. Stage three, then you hire people, you really scale up. Like that's the big inflection point. And then stage four, you take that and Maybe you expand into new markets or some kind of a new channel. And then it starts over again, right? With phase one and, and perfecting that. And so to me, the kind of capital that a company wants to raise is going to depend on where they are in that journey. So if they're in like stage one and stage two, if you're refining the product market fit and getting it repeatable, like debt can be a fantastic tool for that because it allows you to make targeted investments. It allows you to make a few key hires and, and give yourself that confidence that you're ready to really scale up. And then in the meantime, your company valuation is growing. And then when you're comfortably at, at stage three, you're ready to hire people. That's when equity really shines. That's the inflection point. Or if you're going in a new, a new market, that's, that's where equity really shines. That's an inflection point. I think like where people get it wrong is they try to raise equity too early uh, when they're not quite ready. And then there's like pressure to, to like really hire up before the business is really ready for it. I guess a question there with debt. I mean, one thing that founders here always talk about is, you know, no one will lend me money. No one, you know, banks won't touch me. Where, where are these debt options? And I mean, don't they have to have sales first before anyone will make a, make a loan? Or are there, are there all these different types of debt options out there that people have no idea about? There are, it's more available than many people think. I think a lot of people just don't think about it. But you do bring up an important point that I don't think that debt is always a good idea. So, like, there are times when a company is too early, like, like when they're very early, less than a million, two million of, of ARR, it's possible, but um, in my mind, not an ideal time to be raising debt. I, I think it's more appropriate when companies have a little bit more scale, a little bit more stability, because that's the time where those targeted investments are really going to make a difference. The other time that I don't think debt is maybe the best is if companies are already investing very heavily in growth. Like If you already have quite a high burn rate, I, I as a founder, I'd be cautious because you don't want 
a high burn rate and a and plus debt and a short runway can be a little bit precarious. Okay. Yeah, we might have to revisit that later on, but I'm kind of curious, can we go back to, you know, so you're saying that people should be very careful for the timing of their equity rounds, correct? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's almost like there's like an analogy um, that one of our CEOs gave us where it's like you're you're running a company, it's like you're driving a car and you're in the driver's seat and then the equity, it's like the VC gets in the passenger seat and it's like in a movie that they, they, they bang your foot down on the gas and the car just kind of goes. And so it's very easy to, to end up, you know, whatever, like in a, in a ditch or in a hill or something. So you just want to be really careful before you raise that equity round that know exactly how you're going to use it. And by the way, there's nothing against equity. A rec makes equity investments too. I just want people to be smart and really think about how they time it. Okay. So so let's talk a little bit about either the thought pattern of that founder. So say early stage company, you know, we're here in Silicon Valley, they're going through an accelerator. They ha- they don't really have that the million ARR annual recurring revenue. You know, they do have some sales. So probably in that situation they're limited to to equity or friends and family round or that, but I mean, how would that timing cuz most conversations are if we don't get money today, we we're broke and we're sleeping on our, you know, someone's couch or, or heavens forbid they have to go back and work at Google and make 400,000 a year, you know, heavens forbid that. But, uh, it's not as far off as people think, trust me, this, this joke is pretty realistic, but, yep. um, but with that, how could they do timing in that? Or should they be thinking about maybe the milestones they need to immediately hit? Or, I mean, situations like that where it's, okay, we got six months to go, but we're still so early. What should they be thinking there? I think that could be hard. I think that in the early stages, I agree with you. I think that friends and family, convertible notes, those are the most seed equity rounds. I think you really need that for a company to get a certain amount of escape velocity. Like debt is growth oriented debt is best when that product market fit, you're kind of coming in on it and you have a sales machine and you want to perfect it. Like you want to get a sales machine, you want to get it repeatable so that you have the confidence of a dollar invested in sales and marketing is going to result in X dollars of new sales. And the reason debt's so great with that is that you can make these very targeted investments. You can take a couple of quarters, hire a couple of salespeople and see how quickly they ramp, execute some marketing activities and see how well well they convert really hone in on those unit economics. And then when you have that confidence, that's when you come in with the equity round and really scale up. And actually, one other case where debt can be a great tool is we have a lot of companies work with us for this reason, that as a software company, there are certain milestones where getting equity at attractive valuations can become a lot easier. So it's right, like 3 million of ARR, 5 million of ARR, 10 million of ARR, or like certain growth rates where valuations on equity rounds tend to go up by step functions. And a lot of companies work with us. And I think that in general is a way to uh, be able to accelerate themselves to those milestones so that when they raise the equity, it's at more attractive valuations at that point. With Jim, quick question. The, the valuation bumps there, 3 million, 5 million, all associated with ARR or growth. Can you go a little bit deeper on possible what those growth rates could be? Or maybe from your side of the table, looking what really piques your interest when you hear of a company doing this or doing that? Or what 
what milestones maybe are industry milestones where it's pretty well known across the board in private equity in that if companies hit this milestone, we're interested or this milestone, we're interested? Well, it's it's hard to speak in generalities. Obviously, every company is different. But in general, what I've found is that there are a few big ones where when, when you hit these particular milestones, a new group of capital providers can start to talk to you. And I think that's why it flows down when we're talking about equity, it flows into higher valuations. And when you're talking about debt, it just means there are more options. Those that I've seen have been at around the 3 million of ARR mark, uh, a whole new group of... You get into the universe of a whole new group of investment funds. Same with 5 million of ARR and 10 million of ARR. Like they're arbitrary numbers, but it for whatever reason, it just does seem to make a difference. And growth rates similarly i mean like there's a huge difference between positive growth and negative growth <laughs> results in very different set of options you know but in 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 terms of debt um i, I think there are people that will look at a whole spectrum it just it just depends on what you're looking for and who the partner is that's really interesting what was said about how different milestones will open up more options for debt and then but for equity will give those multiple bumps yeah. It's a really interesting way to think about it that actually I'll, I'm not sure if I've I've heard that before. What but what I have heard in the past is people talking about like this debt spiral that you get mm. in debt and then you get, you know, borrow debt to pay off that debt and it gets worse and worse and worse. When can debt be, you know, what should people watch out for? Yeah, you have you do have to be very careful about that. And you're right. I think that that debt at its best as a tool is something that can help give you confidence for that equity round or can get you to those milestones where the equity round is going to go more smoothly and is going to be at a better valuation. Um, for us, I like that we have this ability to do to do both. Normally in the industry, it's firms are one or the other. I think that where I've seen companies get in trouble with debt, I think where people have to be really careful is not to take too much. Where we usually think is a safe amount is taking a company's ARR, dividing it by maybe a half or a third tends to be comfortable. If a company is taking on debt that's like equal to their, uh, you know, 100% of their ARR or more, some companies do it, it works out fine. For me, it, it feels like a little, feels like a lot. Um, and then the other, situation where I think companies have to be very careful is if their burn rate is very high. Like We normally like to think that if we're going to make a debt investment in a company, they're going to have at least a year of runway before they need to start thinking about whatever that next capital event is, whether that's us leading an equity round or them going out doing an outside equity round or doing more debt, something like that. 12 months feels about comfortable. If someone is bringing on debt to cover three or six months of burn, and then something else is going to have to get figured out, that can be a pretty short time frame. And maybe one other thing I'll mention that I think is really important is actually two things. One is companies need to be very conscious of how much time they're going to have to pay back the debt. Ours are set up over five years. I've seen frequently, I've seen debt structures where it's get, getting paid back in one, two, three years. And companies should just be aware that's not a lot of time to be able to use that money before you have to really start paying it back. Like it's best when you can use the debt, make some investments, really get the return before you're having to pay back the bulk of it. And I'm wondering, and this I probably should have brought up, you know, the very, very, very beginning, going back to everyone here in Silicon Valley, so used to venture capitalists. Private equity, I'm not even sure if that's in people's vocab. What is the difference between 
private equity and venture capital. Mm. Okay, so this is very interesting. So I actually, I think there's kind of some interesting history here. Like the fundamental difference is that in general, private equity is 100% owning a business versus venture capital growth equity, where it, you're a minority investor. But it flows through to, to what it's like to work with one or the other. So like, if you look at historically venture capital, a lot of the most successful firms were the firms that were able to have access to the best companies, really were the best company pickers. And that created a halo effect where they then had access to the best deal flow. And it was kind of a self-reinforcing cycle. I think that's changing in recent years. I think that venture firms have become a lot more active, but I think most people would agree with me that that's kind of where it came from. And you contrast that with private equity, where historically they've been investing in companies where they're owning them. And the most successful private equity firms were the ones that could take a company, get the growth going faster, uh, make them more efficient, be like very operationally intensive. That's what I like about it. That's why I think private equity has really gotten right is just the operating chops. And that's kind of what, you know, what I mentioned at the beginning, that's kind of what we're trying to channel is taking that private equity heritage and applying it to the investment that, that we're making, whether or not it's debt or equity. Staying on that topic a little bit about the operations. I mean, here in Silicon Valley, we often hear smart money versus dumb money. And that smart money is, okay, it's just not only giving whatever the amount, but connections, introductions. Is that expected as well with private equity if you take money from from a private equity group? Yes. And to me, what's important is that the investor, whether it's private equity or venture capital or debt or whatever, it's important to have both sides of it. And I think that's what Again, I think that's what private equity has gotten so right. So like the way that we're set up, we have a team that works on making investments and is going to board meetings and networks and connections and thinking about capital allocation, those kinds of things. And we have a totally separate team. And this is kind of how most private equity firms work and some venture firms too, but really this is where private equity came from. It's a whole separate team of people that all they're doing is like, these are people that came from industry, they've run companies, all they're doing is thinking about how to help companies grow and making sure they're getting the operational resources that they need. It's like, it's very different. Those two things are very different skill sets. And I think it's, it's important to have both. And then right now, I mean, Rack is inside a traditional private equity group. Why Why do that? Why not spin it out to, I don't know, it's kind of a standalone thing. Why Why keep it in this kind of, I'm not sure even the relationship. Is it like a, a parent-kid relationship? Is it like an umbrella? Like, what is it? We are a fund of Riverside. So Riverside is our parent. And the beauty of that is that we are, we have the ability to, to leverage that scale. So Riverside has offices all over the world. If we have companies that are thinking about expanding internationally, we have those access to those operating people that have been inside of industry. When we're investing in a company, there's a good chance that Riverside at some point in its 30 years has owned a company in that industry. There's a lot of expertise in-house. It's just a lot of scale that would be hard to have if we weren't part of this bigger organization. And you know, I'm like I'm talking a lot about Rack, but really. The bigger point I want to make is a more general one is that I think that that's our particular model, but I think whoever a company is working with, they should expect that. Like I always tell CEOs when they're thinking about working with a firm, if the partner who is going on your board for whatever reason, would there would that firm still have some systematic way that they could be helping you from an operational standpoint? That that to me is the key question. 
Okay. Now you mentioned board. Now I also know that you have a lot of experience on being on boards and that is something that comes up quite a bit with, you know, cause who knows you, you get the wrong board or maybe it's the right board still, but they can vote you out. If you're the CEO and you founded that company. One day things are going great. Next day, and we had uh, Jotham, uh, a lawyer here in Silicon Valley, talk about you know stories, made up names, people that had you know eighty percent of the shares in a company, but the board voted them out. So how, from your from your position on the board, advice? How do you how should you be a good person on the board? What should founders think of when you know assigning board seats, or on the other side, the investors? who from their team goes on the board. I mean, right there, I think we could talk for a day on it, but let's just start with best board practices. Well, I mean, this is such... Uh, so I think about this a lot. I, I, I love this topic and you're right. I do have, I think, somewhat of a unique perspective just because we're involved with so many boards. Like as far as I can tell, it seems to me that board meetings tend to end up in, in like one of three categories. One is like the... The team comes and does updates and the board is just totally disengaged and nobody asks any questions. It's like a dead room. And it's, I mean, those are, those are the, the most painful and it happens more than you would hope. And then there's kind of a second category, which I think is the most common where they're fine, but it tends to have like board members with very strong opinions about, about smaller details and those can get derailed and inevitably you end up not having time to do much um, really strategic discussion. And then there's the third category where it's like really productive. And, you know, those are like, like those are the unicorns. They happen the least. I mean, it's like, it just kills me. It makes me so sad how often these board meetings are not great uses of people's time. Well, with that, how to make them productive? How should the, the founder go into it? How should the board go into a meeting? I've thought a lot about this. I think that the the most productive board meetings I think you have to have the right, like, I think it needs like the right environment to thrive in, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, I, I think the conditions have to be right. And probably the most important condition is a feeling of safety and trust so that there can be real honesty and candor. I think that it takes a lot of preparation. People need to be really, really prepared so that they can talk about what what's important to the business. And then I think it takes a lot of time. I think that you need to have enough time, like unstructured time in the board meeting for real strategic discussion. It, it doesn't happen very often. I, I, I think I'll say about boards, the same thing I said about when you're looking at capital providers, I think it is, it's an extreme privilege to be on the board of a company. And I think management team CEOs sometimes are too easy on their board. Like I would love them to keep, like keep them to like very high standards. If if you're having a board meeting and you're not coming out of it having thought about a problem in some new way or having been challenged in a way that was meaningful to you, if you're not finding that you really care what the people on the board have to say, I think that's kind of on you as the CEO, you as the founder to fix that. Like you know, make sure make sure you're getting something out of this. Otherwise. Well, really, what's the point? And I'm sure it's case by case, but how much can the CEO and that push the board for either engagement from them, for advice? Like, when does it, from your experience, and, and maybe, you know, because everything's confidential, maybe it's hypothetical what you've heard. When is it when it's, okay, this, the CEO and that, they're pushing us to get information or the, hey, the CEO is pushing us, now it's time to replace the CEO. I don't see CEOs getting replaced by boards 
very often at all. I know it happens when things start to go badly in a company, it, you know, crazy things start to happen. It's very, very unusual. I think that CEOs have a lot more influence than they think over how those board meetings are going to go. People on your board are doing it because they enjoy it. They want to be helpful. And if you're not setting up the right environment, if you're not creating the conditions where they can be helpful, it's just not going to happen. Like, okay, so I'll give you an example. The probably the most effective construction, constructive board I'm involved with, the management updates are recorded in advance. And so the board, we you you watch the meetings ahead of time. Everybody comes, everybody's prepared. And then the entire meeting is oriented around like unstructured discussion of what are the strategic topics that we need to talk about as a board. Like that's super effective. And that's not something that it was driven by the board to do that. That's driven by the CEO. That's just one example. That's really interesting. In fact, I hope our audience takes that advice and uses it. I mean, little, I'm not even sure that could be considered a hack, but. I, I mean, can you imagine how, doing it? Right. Like, can you imagine how substantive those board meetings are? It's everybody's super prepared. A lot gets done and the CEO gets a ton out of it. What about the very, very beginning when the CEO's first or the founders first constructing their board? How should they be thinking about five seats, seven seats, three, you know, just the very foundation of it? And because I would, I would guess the foundation, those decisions impact the future so much more than probably people are aware of. That's probably true. I to me, what matters the most, more than the number of seats, three feels like too few, seven feels like too many. Most that I'm involved with are usually five, five or seven. What matters the most is does the CEO like? Do you care about what these people have to say? Um, and I would like really encourage people to to think deeply about that. I think that founders get and rightly so, but get focused on when they're thinking about taking capital or whatever, they get focused on it's like, oh, like the valuation, what's the difference in the valuation in these two things or or uh, like in the case of a lender, what, oh, what's the difference of a few percentage points of interest here or there? Those things really are not in the end what's going to make the most substantive difference in my opinion. Like what's really going to matter is are you getting involved with people that are going to be helpful, that are going to be able to help you that are actually going to have things to say that you're going to care about. Okay. Now going back, we did discuss the difference between venture capital and private equity, but when should a founder reach out to private equity when considering raising capital? So private equity, the great thing about private equity is typically they have a lot of resources and private equity firms are investing a lot more in tech now than they used to. And if you're looking for a war chest, private equity can be can be great. Like if you really want to go out and attack a market, hire fast, they have a lot of resources can can put a lot of capital behind you. I think that most typically that starts to happen in the world of enterprise software when companies are getting like have some scale. Like when they're getting to 15, 20 million or so of ARR, then private equity firms can in my experience will start to get interested in doing some of these really bigger kind of hyper growth rounds. I think that'd be great. Of course, the drawback of that is that that the, the founder, the CEO, is signing up for quite a journey at that point. It, you know, it's going to take a while to a war chest is going to take a while to deploy it. So it's not really an exit. It's really a CEO signing up for three to five more years of running the company. What about uh, that relationship between normally goes angels to VCs, VCs to private equity? And, and that angel VC, I mean, sometimes it's a love-hate. I mean, you'll hear yeah. stuff of angels making intros and then same time VCs kicking angels out. And what's the relationship between VC and private equity? 
It is. It's just much more common than it used to be. So the when I got started in this back in 2006, it was angels, VCs, and then either you sell to a strategic acquirer or you go public. We really didn't think about going to private equity firms at that time. And that's totally changed. And so it's just, I think of it as another tool. It's another path. It's another path for founders to get liquidity and to grow their companies. You know, the other time that private equity can be really useful actually is on the flip side, because they're so much more active now than they used to be and doing a lot of these roll-up strategies, it can be a great path. Things aren't going great with the business. You know, maybe the growth has tailed off business hasn't gotten the scale that maybe people hope and people are looking for a new home you know th- those can sometimes not going to be done for the highest multiples in the world but they can still be good outcomes and i find that even like it's something people don't think about like even surprisingly small software companies with in some cases i've seen surprisingly low or even negative growth can still find exits that can make people reasonably happy if they're talking to the right PE firms. And it's also funny because you mentioned small. Small is relative. What's yes. small in your guys' world? Yeah, small in my world. So I, and when I'm saying small, I, in my experience, if a company's at two or three million of, of ARR, I think it's possible for PE firms to potentially get interested in them. I, it happens even with companies that are like at a million or so below that, I, it, I, I'm sure it happens, but I just don't see it that often. There needs to be some kind of scale for the firm to want to like plug it into some other platform that they have. And then I'm also kind of curious, where are you seeing the trends in private equity? Rack is kind of a unicorn on its own. You know, Where overall in the whole ecosystem of private equity are things going? Are they going towards competing at the lower end with VCs? Are they, are they going to, I don't know, given higher multiples or taking more risk or what's happening in that world? I think so. Uh, the, to me, the, what's most interesting is that there are now private equity firms that like all they do is invest in tech. So that's been a change. Like if you look 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't done that often. And now there are whole firms is like literally all they do. The other thing that I think is interesting is that private equity firms are now talking to companies even before they're profitable. That's also not something that you saw very often in the past. So it's good. I mean, it's been great for as somebody who is in this space and working with software companies, like having this kind of whole new source of capital to help fuel the growth. It's, I mean, it's been a nice tailwind for us actually. Okay. And, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but I got to ask, you know, a lot of our listeners in that they'll say, Hey, I just got, you know, an email from a private equity group. They're really interested in acquiring us. We're going to have a call next week. And you'll just hear these, you know, unsolicited acquisition offers where someone gets really excited, but they won't talk about it later on. It sounds like it dies. I mean, if a random company suddenly gets this email from a private equity group, I mean, I know each group is different, but how serious should they take those emails? It's not something you can certainly bank until it's done. But I, I think it's a very difficult balance for CEOs because they it, it can be a big distraction. Uh, I know that companies hear from private equity firms, investors, VC firms, growth equity firms all the time. And I think that a CEO could could really spend a lot of time if they have every single conversation. But I also think every conversation you have 
you learn something. And I've seen some of those where it was a cold outbound, like a cold inbound t- turn into to like something real. So I, I wouldn't be close to it. But I think you're right. It's like Pete, by its nature, just understand that these firms are super, super selective. They're they're looking for for every investment they make, they're probably looking at a hundred that they don't make. Jim, before wrapping it up, can we go back to the the topic of how to be a good board member? I, I really want to dive deeper there because I mean it is something we don't talk about too much on the show, but it it really does affect companies tremendously. So I mean, how does one go about being a good board member? Well, we talked about preparation. And I mean, that, that's kind of obvious. I think everybody knows that you want to be prepared. You want to have a good network, all that stuff. I think that what's really important, I want people who are, who are thinking about going on boards is to think about the, the empathy side of it. And remember that it, like, it takes a whole lot of... It takes a lot of courage for somebody to start a software company or be a CEO of a software company. People work very, very hard. They're doing it because they want to make the world a better place. Like, you know, I honestly feel like software has the ability to make the world a more efficient place, better place, more fair place. I mean, that's why I do this. I love being in this industry. And when you're on the board, you're that's the mindset of the leaders of these companies. Sometimes things don't go great. It just happens. And it can be for reasons that are outside of the control of, of anybody. And ironically, that's when the board should be stepping up the most. And what I've seen in my experience is then is that that's when things can get the ugliest. And so I would just encourage people to have a lot of empathy for that and realize like how hard people are working. And when things aren't working, maybe I think even a small amount of acknowledgement of that can go really a long way. That reminds me of some of our past episodes when we uh, interviewed Chucky Orbita, the former center of the Pittsburgh Steelers when they won the Super Bowl. And he was talking about mental wellness. And also Sam Wong, um, we interviewed him. I think it was episode 101. He had five companies, three exits, two failed. But he was talking about mental wellness again during the tough times of almost losing his house and all these other things and how there's these peaks and valleys of founding these companies. But with that, the mental wellness and that question, do boards roles kind of change? I mean, I understand them changing when there's ups and downs with the company, but what happens when there's ups and downs from like the outside economy pushing in on the company? Should the board step up there? What's What changes from the board's kind of point of view or insight when it there's all these outside things happening at once? I think in, in those cases, it's incumbent on the board to like I don't think the the board should be making those kinds of decisions on behalf of the company. I think it's very hard for the board because they're not there, they're not on the ground. I don't think it's healthy when people see an economy that might be weakening to make unilateral statements that oh, you know, we, we need to let people go and get to profitability and because it's going to de- it's going to depend by company and I think the board needs to like make sure that the founder of the team are focused on the right things, but it should really be a decision that's made collaboratively and knowing that the CEO and the team have much better visibility being there on the ground than the board does from their vantage point. Nice takeaway. I like that. Jim, is there anything else you want to share with us? Any key takeaways? Please do so. If not, you know where else can people find out more information about yourself, Rack, and all the little details about Rack. All right. Well, key takeaways, be smart about 
what kind of capital you're raising when you're raising it and hold your financial partners to super, super high standards. Those are my two big things. If you want to get in touch with us, I'll start with... Maybe I'll just start with our parameters. Our debt investments, they start between a million and $3 million. And our equity investments usually start between 5 and $15 million. And our engagement model is that when we meet with a company, we get to know them. We work with them to decide which form of capital is best depending on where they are at that particular moment of time. And either way, whether we're investing debt or equity, companies have access to all of our operating resources that you know we've been talking about today. We'll often actually stage it. So we'll start with a debt investment and we'll work with a company on hitting some of those milestones, getting that sales machine in a repeatable place. And then we can make a very quick decision and lead an equity round. And companies know us, they know exactly who they're working with. So that's great when we can start with debt and grow into equity when that happens. So that's our model. And if you're a growing software company and you're between 2 and 15 million of ARR, and you're in the US or Canada or Europe, Australia, New Zealand, our philosophy, if everything we talked about resonates with you, then please reach out. You can go to our website at riverside.ac. And if you're looking for someone to be in the middle of that conversation when I'm not a uh, host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. And with that, please reach out, connect with us on the Silicon Valley podcast, connect with myself on LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. Um, that handsome bald guy there with that nice suit on, that's my picture on on LinkedIn. But you know, more than anything, Jim, I want to thank you for your time this week on the Silicon Valley podcast. I look for to have you on the show again in the future. And with that, Thank you again for your time this week. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.